Hello and welcome to The Crux of the Matter, a podcast by pastors for pastors. My name is Pastor Todd Peppercorn. And I'm Scott Stigmeyer. You're a pastor too, right? Yeah, I'm okay. Pastor Scott Stigmeyer. Right, right, right. We just got to remember these things because I know it's easy to forget our identity sometimes. Our, uh, our topic for this week is the, is the topic of Lent. But before we get to that, we had a tiny bit of feedback that I wanted to mention. And by the way, if you want to provide some, us with some feedback, either topic suggestions or disagreements or whatever it is, you can contact us at feedback at thecruxofthematter.net. I got some feedback sort of kind of through that, but not really. That was from my deaconess. And my deaconess reminded me from our episode last week on prayer that we actually produce something that is a uh, that for us is a really good discipline on prayer, and it's called Holy Cross at Prayer. My congregation, Holy Cross Lutheran Church, we um, the deaconess. Her name's Pamela Bailey Silva. The deaconess and I prepare a daily meditations for our congregation, and what this is is a a short I'll call it a gospel sentence that's from the readings for Sunday, uh, a, a selection of the readings. And then a short meditation, uh, and I would say these meditations are pretty short, probably shorter than portals of prayer length meditations. Uh, and then we pray for a specific member of our congregation each day, the collect of the week, and then the Lord's Prayer. So the whole thing takes about five minutes to do each day, and we prepare those usually seasonally. Um, I frankly can't can't imagine that I forget that because that's probably my most go-to item for maintaining a regular discipline of prayer. But I wanted to get that feedback in there. Does your congregation do something like that? Have you thought about doing something like that, Scott? Or is that, I, are we just I think about it all. No, you're not weird. I think about it all the time. And, and I often think about it because I've uh, seen some of your examples, your samples, and I keep thinking, you know what, I'm going to do that. But we, we don't. I don't. I don't have that in place. Yeah, it 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 took us a while to kind of get the get the hang of it. And it's and it's a little bit easier for us because there are two of us. Mm-hmm. Um, she and I kind of tag team writing them, and so it's not all it's not all on me, which is good because I would fail utterly otherwise. Um, but that's our but that's our feedback. You can find this episode of the show at the crux of the matter slash the crux of the matter dot net slash podcast slash five. And with that, let's uh, let's get into it. I think some of my uh, oldest memories of church have to do with with Lent. Um, either either not with the imposition of ashes because we didn't do that at my home church when I was growing up, um, but we did veil the crosses, and there is a sort of somber somberness and seriousness to the season that uh, that that I think almost goes beyond words that is quite uh, that is quite profound um, what's your kind of what do you think about Lent are you in favor of Lent I love it yeah you know I, it might sound strange to say it that way but I really love the season of Lent I, it's not a I think people are mistaken if they think of it as morbid and morose and you know full of dread that's not really how I view it at all or, or how, I mean, there is a sense of, of, of being conscious of our sins, but it's, it's ultimately preparing for something 
truly, truly glorious, and that is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, so Lent for me is is a, a, a very special time, and always has been. When I was a kid, um, we didn't when we had midweek Advent services for the congregation. We didn't impose ashes then either. But I went midweek to a Lent. Lutheran, you mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not Advent. But when I went to, uh, but I went to a Lutheran school. And we did. We did that on Ash Wednesday. We would have in our chapel service, even though the you know the parents didn't do that at that time in my home church. We did it in school. So I grew up getting ashes on my forehead on Ash Wednesday and really? being yeah, yeah. I mean I, that that's what they did. And I don't know. I, I haven't kept in touch with them well enough to know what they do now if that's still done. But I used to get ashes. And then when I went to a Lutheran high school, we did it then as well. So I've always kind of had that practice and participated in that practice. So when I became a pastor and went to uh, my first congregation, which was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Concordia Lutheran Church there, they, as I recall, they didn't, they hadn't done it. They hadn't done it in a long time if they'd done it at all. And so I was sort of introducing it or reintroducing it there. And my parish here has done it for a long time. So the use of the ashes on Ash Wednesday. And interestingly, I'm knowing, I'm learning that there are people in other church traditions, not what we would consider sort of low church practice in terms of their worship or free 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 form church worship practices are starting to adopt things like the observance of advent observing lent even ash wednesday palm sunday burning the palms for the ashes the next year uh, i have a very good friend who's a baptist pastor in kentucky and and he does all that and so that seems to me kind of an important thing to suggest to say to point out well and uh, and this is the I would say the recovery of a uh, of a liturgical life that is happening more across the board in in evangelicalism and Protestantism. This is I think that this is kind of hard for us to even fathom as Lutherans because Lent is so sort of ingrained in our DNA that it's impossible for us to get to get past it. But um, I know that uh, I don't believe that he is alive anymore. I think he's with the Lord, but not too far from you, down the street from you at Wheaton, there was a professor for a long time named Robert Weber. Oh, sure. That was kind of kind of the champion of of a liturgical practice among evangelicals at Wheaton College, um, and he was, if I recall correctly, uh, the book that's. In my head is the ancient future church, but he wrote lots of different books. And and uh, another uh, Protestant, I think he was a Methodist, James White, uh, has written a lot of things on liturgy and worship. And one of those elements is often recovering recovering a sense of ritual. Yeah. And and if there's anything about uh, about Ash Wednesday, about Lent, that is true, it is that there are physical elements to what happens that accompany the word. Um, and, and for me, uh, I am always fascinated by that because I think that we as Lutherans have such a strong tendency toward being noetic, toward being so head-oriented head that ritual action for us in a, in a sense is, uh, I would suggest it's getting back to our roots. It's definitely a part of our theology. It's a part of our practice. But it is not something we have been quite as intentional about until, 
I don't know, probably the last generation or generation and a half, there's certainly been a recovery of those ritual elements. And that may include things like like ashes, the imposition of ashes, um, like the veiling of the cross, uh, uh, eliminating the Alleluia or the Gloria during, during Lent. Um, but, uh, but that does not – that does not always sit well. I, mm. I remember at my home congregation, which was a Holy Cross Lutheran Church in St. Charles, Missouri. It's uh, no longer in existence, sadly. But at Holy Cross, uh, anything that anything that would give the impression that it might have been done somewhere at some time by any church remotely connected to the Roman Catholic Church, anything like that at all was anathema it was yeah. just it was evil yeah and so uh, i would say that that for me growing up the imposition of ashes on ash wednesday was kind of held up as this is everything that's wrong with rome right this is this is why we're lutherans and we don't do this because this is a a meaningless ritual that is not commanded in scripture that does not have any any historic precedent or not much. I think that was the impression, at least. And that uh, if you're doing this, you're doing this because of works righteousness and because you believe you have to work your way to heaven. So I am going to not do ashes on Ash Wednesday as a confession of faith. Um, I don't think that my my home church – and I'm really not – I'm not saying that to belittle that. Uh, right. That is uh, – obviously, there are some very real concerns inside all of that. But uh, but what you what you have outlined is your history and what and what my practice has been really since seminary and as a parish pastor is not not the same as that. Why why do you think that it is worthwhile as Lutherans to make use of some of these practices? Why is this a good idea? Well, for first first of all, it's biblical. Um, you know, I can show you. Uh, several places where it was practiced in the Old Testament. Um, Job is one good example. He covered himself in sackcloth and ashes in Job 42. Daniel says, I turned to the Lord, pleading in earnest prayer with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And after, in Jonah, after he preached uh, about conversion and repentance in the town of Nineveh, did repent. They proclaimed a fast and they right. put on sackcloth and the king it says covered himself with sackcloth and sat in the ashes. So putting ashes on our face or 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 body as a sign, a visual sign of repentance is in fact a biblical practice and it's never condemned. If not commanded, it's certainly not condemned. And it, I'm going to play the Marcy. I'm going to play the Marcion advocate here, though. That's yeah. all in the Old Testament, Scott. That's not yeah. New Testament. Jesus came. We don't need to do that stuff anymore. Well, Jesus does talk about uh, fasting, and he does specifically say when you fast. And interestingly, and this is always what I want to talk about on Ash Wednesday, is you know Jesus says not to make a show of your fasting. So I actually, what I tell my congregations is. In the service where I'm going to, you know, we'll put the ashes on your face and nobody has to come up for that part of the, you know, it's totally voluntary. And 
I recommend to people that they wash their face or wipe their face before they go out. Because I think that Jesus is saying, you know, um, you know, when you are fasting, wash your face, he says. Put on clean clothes. Don't make it apparent to the world. When we're here in the church, it's one thing. But when we're going out into the world, then it could be seen as I'm broadcasting my piety. That is what Jesus is warning us against. But many, you know, I would say any custom that is... Uh, associated with fasting, it would certainly be the use of ashes in some way. It's not commanded, and it, and and so I don't judge anybody who doesn't do it. But I think in Christian liberty, it's a it's a it's a noble tradition, and it and it certainly is a you you can't argue with the power of having families come up with small children and elderly people. At the, however you do it at your communion rail as I do or whatever. Right. And we don't just put ashes on their face, but we, I, you know, usually it's in the sign of a cross and the words that are spoken are very important too. If we want to go back to the word, 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 the words that are spoken are biblical words and they are remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. So it's not just a sign of repentance. It's a reminder, a visual reminder, physical and visual reminder that we're mortal and right. that that we deserve to die. And I think that that I Todd, I, I really think you're on something and I would suggest we make a whole podcast on word versus image and visual versus audio, you know, audio, what you hear, because while, of course, the scripture says faith comes by hearing the, the, the gospels are full of signs and signs are things you see. Uh, right. So so, you know, and we have to have a balance and we tend to be so word oriented that you use the word noetic or I would say, you know, very intellectualizing of the faith and intellectualizing of the faith or making it just a cognitive exercise. Whereas it's more than that. We are, we are more than minds. We are bodies as well. And right. bodies respond well to, to visual things into, and to felt things and to tasted things, sensory things, not just thought thoughts that, that, you know, come, come along. But that's right. why things like incense and, and kneeling and prostrating oneself and making the sign of the cross, gestures, all these sorts of things. No, they don't make us better Christians, but they do incorporate the whole person in the worship instead of just simply their brain. So that's, what, that's where I'm at. I mean, that's where I'm at in terms of the value of, of ashes as just one example of having a sensory experience using your body in worship is what you taste, feel, sometimes smell if you use incense or candles. And the church has done this since a time immemorial, even in the yeah. ancient, even in the, um, in the Jewish tradition. And much of our liturgy, much of our practice is in fact modeled after the synagogue liturgy that, that the first disciples would have certainly inherited. And I realize that this is a completely this is a whole other topic which we may have to handle sometime, but the Lutheran concept or the Lutheran understanding of Reformation is much more to reform what is there rather than to start over and add in what is necessary. There, right. I mean, that's, a, that's a huge distinction that we can deal with yep. another time, I think. Um, I want to point our listeners to a couple, uh, a couple items that I think are worth worth mentioning. The first is an article that I wrote last year 
uh, in the Federalist. The Federalist is a uh, uh, is an online magazine, and and this was an interesting little little exercise where they had a point counterpoint on on whether or not Christians should practice Lent and and why this is a good thing or why it isn't a good thing. Uh, I'll I'll have a link to that in the show notes. The second is a sermon by a uh, by a professor at the Fort Wayne Seminary. The professor's name is James Busher, and this is a sermon that he that he gave uh, many years ago. I want to say fifteen years ago, perhaps something like yeah. that, on yeah. Ash Wednesday. And I think he does a a really good job with tying the imposition of ashes to understanding mortality and our death and the death of our Lord. Uh, I will I will uh, either find that available somewhere else online, or with his permission, I will I will post it for us, and we'll link we'll link to that as well on the show notes. But those are those are a couple uh, a couple important important little topics. Or Excellent. a couple resources, I think. Um, but this is this is what I want to I want to spend a little bit of time talking about, and that is we've mentioned a number of practices, and while we could go into more individual things on ashes, on on burying the Alleluia, and these things, I think it might be worth our while to ask the question of how do you introduce, or if the case may be, reintroduce these practices. In a new congregation, uh, we have a number of, of listeners and friends that are relatively young pastors, some of whom this is their first Lent, and and they're coming from, like we did, coming from a uh, the rarefied atmosphere of the seminary, and where all of these practices and more are, are kind of held up, and many of the congregations in the Fort Wayne area do so as well. And are going uh, elsewhere where these practices are either not done, are not done often, and are, I think I would say, very often viewed with suspicion. So how do you, as a pastor, how do you introduce these things without coming across as the, without coming across as the, a Romanistic jerk, basically, yeah. that, wants to, that wants to introduce works righteousness into our congregation? What? I don't know. How would you how would you approach that, Scott? So so you and I have both been a pastor for been pastors for about nineteen years, I think. Yep. And so we're not you know, we're not too long in the tooth yet, but we do have some experience under our belt. And different pastors are gonna give you different advice. My opinion is that you simply take your time, that you simply don't rush it. And you don't throw the whole bale of hay at them at once. You maybe do one thing. You teach them about the word. You know, depending on, uh, learn as much about the congregation as you can. Learn as much about their traditions. Maybe there's a reason that you, you know, a good reason or a bad reason. But there's a maybe a reason for why they may have stopped doing something. And if you just introduce it again without fully addressing whatever may have been the underlying cause you could be doing some serious damage to people. And these are things, I'm not talking about pure doctrine or, you know, making sure you preach the gospel and administer the sacraments. I'm talking about, you know, whether or not you're going to veil the cross or you're going to use a crucifix or you're going to use a bear cross, you know, those kinds of things. You, you, you go slow 
and by slow, I'm talking years, not not months. And um, that's my opinion. I think after serving a, a couple of parishes, I think that you don't really get into your groove into a church until about year five. That's sort of my experience. It's about the year five you get into a groove. And that's when I think you can really blossom. And and so if you're thinking you're going to introduce these things in the first two years or three years, maybe you can and maybe you'll get away with it. But I think in many cases that's just simply naive. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know. I and, mean, do you, do you basically agree, Todd, or do you, would you yeah, say that? Yeah, I do. Like, I, I, I think that the what I would add to that, Scott, is that we have to understand and recognize the the relationship between ritual and ceremony. Mm-hmm. That um, that broadly speaking, in liturgical terms, ritual has to do with the words, and ceremony has to do with the actions. And for us as Lutherans, ceremony always always has to teach and has to serve the gospel. That's uh, That, I believe, is in the apology to the Augsburg Confession. And so whenever we're looking at practices, we have to ask the question, what is this serving? Is this, is this a benefit? And then, uh, and then you're, you're right on of asking, how then do I introduce these so that they are going to serve the gospel? Uh, so if I'm going to do the imposition of ashes, I don't simply announce in the bulletin on Transfiguration Sunday or Quinquagesima or whatever you're doing the Sunday before, before Ash Wednesday. I don't simply announce we're going to do the imposition of ashes and do it. That right. would be, I, I think that the theological term for that is crazy. Yeah. Um, because that's not going to actually teach anything. That's simply the new guy coming in and doing his own thing and doesn't really care what anybody else thinks or why. Um, so practices, whatever they are, have to be uh, have to be done carefully and deliberately. Now, I would I would also add that teaching does not always mean comfort and easy. Right. Uh, there is a very real benefit to uh, to taking people a little bit outside of their comfort zone uh, and. And, and using some of these practices to maybe ask them to re-examine their own, their own understanding and practice. Uh, and for that, ra- for that reason, I do, I do think that it's good to, good to kind of nudge toward these things. Part of what I try to do, and heaven knows I have failed at this in more ways that I can count, a part of what I try to do is, um, is telegraph my intentions. That is... If I believe that a practice is a good practice that we should be doing as a congregation, I will teach about it. I will make clear that this is something that I believe would be in our benefit, but that I will be much more, um, that I will be intentional about not, not pulling the trigger, not doing the, therefore, we're going to do this in two weeks but giving people time to digest it, time to ask questions, and as much as possible, try to, try to answer those questions along the way. Now, I would, I would suggest that a part of the frustration with that whole process is that very often the people that have questions 
are the people that are are less likely to to let's say less likely to trust your judgment on this off the cuff are often people that are not in Bible class and are not going to be in a regular part of the conversation. So you have a bit of a dilemma. How do I have this conversation and how do I teach when the people that perhaps are going to be most likely to resist a practice are not physically <laughs> where you're going to be teaching? Well, this that is, is a... Ugh. Yeah, it's frustrating. And, you know, of course, you know, we can use social media and we can we can send out letters and we can do all kinds of things. People won't read them. Um, that's why I think the time factor is important, because people that don't maybe they don't come to Bible class or they come very erratically. Eventually, somebody's going to have an operation or they're going to have a death in the family and you're going to be the right. guy. You know, you're going to be right. the shepherd who's there to heal and bring the words of life. And I think once people have gone through that sort of thing with you for a while and they see your pastoral heart, then I think they're more willing uh, to learn. People have to be teachable. They have to be, not only do we have to teach, but that people have to be willing to learn. And sometimes that's easy and people just are. And sometimes they need to, especially if it's a close-knit congregation or a small community, you're the new guy. They don't, they don't trust you just because you have a collar on. I mean, they do, but they don't. I mean, on a, on a very surface level, of course, they, they're going to love you and trust you. But just like love takes time, so does trust. It takes time. And that's when I think you can introduce things that might seem alien to them and they won't be quite as likely to resent. But you have to teach and you have to have a good reason and I just think we should always exercise caution before we introduce or remove any custom or ceremony. Yeah. Um, you, you know, there may be things that we don't think are all that salutary. You know, you, you might need to remove some practice or custom or symbol or something. You might want to do that. But I just I'm not saying no, don't do it. But I, and we do, like you pointed out, need to challenge people at times. Nonetheless, I think caution is really, really warranted and would go a long way. Patience and caution. So we have uh, both fulfilled our roles here and uh, yep. and explained our personalities. Basically, what yep. we're advocating here is patient and cautious pushiness. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm into that. Leadership. Um, Lead, that's the word. Thank yeah. you. I, is mm-hmm. that? Can we use that? Is that a legal word? I, I think that's okay. Use? I think it's okay all in right, that context. That, all right. We will definitely have to uh, tackle the question of leadership at some point, but not right now. Um, at at this point in our in our show, we uh, we turn to the question of the friend of the show, or what is it that. Uh, uh, some other media event or thing that's happening that uh, that is a benefit that that we think that our listeners would like, and I'd like to point you point out to you that Concordia Theological Seminary, our alma mater, uh, is producing a series of video podcasts on the lectionary, on the three year lectionary specifically. And what they're doing is, it looks like it's mostly going to be members of the exegetical department are spending about. 20 minutes or so each week looking at the looking at the gospel for the upcoming Sunday. 
Uh, and then, so they're and particularly looking at the Greek text of the gospel for the upcoming Sunday. Uh, this is a fantastic idea. It's a little bit different than uh, than some of the other uh, approaches to this. Uh, I have really enjoyed it. I will include a, a link in the show notes to the most recent one is uh, Dr. Arthur Just looking at the transfiguration and Mark. Yes, Dr. Just is aware that there are other gospels, I think. Um, and he has some really good insights into that. Uh, so please take a take a listen to that. I think that you will I think you will enjoy it. You can find a copy or find a link to that in the show notes at thecruxofthematter.net slash podcast slash five. So, Scott, what's yeah. bringing you joy this week? Pray tell. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned the book by John Paul II, a theology, uh, which is sort of known as The Theology of the Body. And I may or may not have pointed out that it's a very big book and it is dense. I mean, he was a very philosophical person. And so it's not an easy read, most of it. I had the opportunity to hear a man speak recently who happens to be on staff of uh, Focus on the Family, an evangelical organization. And I, he was speaking at a conference I was attending on the family. And as he was lecturing, I leaned over to Peter Scare, who is Dr. Scare, who was next to me. And I said, he's doing John Paul II. And I talked to this man later. His name is Glenn Stanton, with Glenn with two N's, Glenn Stanton. And I, I don't know that much about him, but he, I went and spoke with him, and he absolutely is translating what John Paul has done into language that will be warm for evangelical, general evangelical audience. And, and, and frankly, I've been reading it and have found it to be a delight to read, not just because of how he is communicating and conveying the good insights of John Paul, but his own insights as well. So the book is called The Family Project. And it's by Glenn Stanton, and the subtitle is How God's Design Reveals His Best for You. And it, by design, it's about the design of the family. It's really good. It's very, very good. It's theological. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope someday maybe we can get sort of a Lutheran uh, iteration of, of something like this that, that, that translates this material to um, our people as well. Cool. Thank you. I, um, I have not read that. I will look forward to reading it. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to recommend a book as well, and the book is by a uh, an Eastern Orthodox theologian named Alexander Schmemann. Uh, the name of the book is Great Lent Journey to Pascha. Uh, it's the book's probably hmm, forty years old, maybe something like that. Uh, Schmemann was uh, was uh, an amazing Orthodox theologian. Uh, of the of this past generation, I don't remember how. I, is he still alive? Do you know, Scott? I don't I, know. I, feel I don't like I know that. I don't think he is. I don't think. I don't he think is. so either. But um, in any event, he what he does is look at some of the patristic practices surrounding surrounding Lent, the prayer of Saint Ephraim, uh, and and a number of other practices. Obviously, not all of it is going to be relevant for us as Lutherans. But I think that it is a good stretch for us in our understanding of these ancient practices to kind of go outside of our, uh, maybe go outside of our circle along the way. Um, one of the phrases that I remember from the book that I, that I really liked as a description of Lent is, uh, uh, is that Lent, Lent is meant to kindle a bright sadness within mm. our hearts. 
Mm. And that, that's a very interesting uh, picture that reminds me of the language that we get in our uh, in our prayer of thanksgiving in the Eucharistic prayer prior to the uh, prior to the words of our Lord with repentant joy we receive these things etc. Um, so that's a that kind of encapsulates a pretty good picture for us of what what Lent is all about. So I would commend that book to uh, to our listeners and uh, if anyone else has a a book or a resource that they have found a particular benefit surrounding Lent and Lent's practices, please please email us or or find us on Twitter or Facebook wherever you can wherever you can find us. Um, probably the easiest way is to email feedback at thecruxofthematter.net. I am Todd at thecruxofthematter.net. He is Scott at thecruxofthematter.net. And I think that will do it for us for this week. Any uh, any final thoughts for for anyone here, Scott? No. Blessed Lent to everyone. Indeed so. Thanks. Have a great have a great time, guys. Bye. Bye.